Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension, and I am in Macomb, Illinois. And on today's episode, of course, we have local food, small farms educator, Katie Parker and Quincy. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. It's good to have you back. Oh, it's great to be back, I guess. Sitting in the saddle again here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and also, of course, we do have Ken Johnson, horticulture educator in Jacksonville. Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris. Welcome back. We were lost without you last week. I don't believe it at all. It sounded like a wonderful episode with Dwayne. So. And I learned a lot about composting and pond management. So folks can check those episodes out on our our podcast stream that we have. And today we are going to be talking about Japanese beetles. And we have a returning guest to the show. We have Andrew Holsinger, a horticulture educator. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good, Chris. Any Japanese beetles in your neck of the woods? Haven't seen them yet, but I know they'll be here soon. So, Andrew, you are located a little bit farther south than the, the three of us here, so you, you're probably going to be the maybe the first one to see them. I mean, you never know, but, you know, usually you start seeing them in the southern parts of Illinois first. So, yep, we'll, we'll just hopefully listen, and you'll let us know when you see that first one. But we were chatting before we started the record button, and Ken had mentioned that we are getting close to, is that right, Ken, the, the emergence? Kind of yep, we're getting close to kind of that, that emergence time. So, so, yeah, one way you can kind of figure out that emergence is look at growing degree days. Um, so Japanese beetles typically start emerging the adults around 950 and we are around at least in Jacksonville around 960 right now so they should become starting to come out any day now here that sounds good I mean uh, Japanese beetles I, I feel like early on in our our kind of careers here with U of I extension we had uh, it was kind of new to folks in West Central Illinois. E even though we often hear the the fact that Japanese beetles have been here for, you know, over a, a century now in, in the North American continent, Ken, do you know a little bit more background about these insects to kind of maybe explain a little bit about how long they've been here and now why are they here here where we all are? So, so they were first found in New Jersey um, in 1916. They think they probably showed up around 1911 um, with a lot of other kind of invasive species. It takes a little time for those populations to build up before you really start noticing them. <clears throat> so like you said, about 100 years, a little over 100 years. Um, and they've just kind of slowly worked their way um, across the country. Um, here in Illinois, they were, we really first found them in the Chicago area around 1932, St. Louis area around 1936. Um, and for the most part, we really just found them in, in kind of those urban settings, um, in Illinois anyway, until about the late 90s. And then for some reason, nobody's really sure why, they kind of started becoming more widespread throughout the state. Um, that's when we started seeing them kind of elsewhere um, besides those, those large urban areas. I think we can all agree that we have, we've chatted with, you know, home gardeners over the course of the last few years. And they're, they're I mean, the sense of just being overwhelmed, and I can certainly relate to that. You know, there have been summers in my backyard, you know, half the plants are just almost completely, the leaves are skeletonized because they feed on the tissue between the, the leaf veins, so they create this kind of lacy, delicate, skeletonized leaf. And you, you sort of feel overwhelmed, but I, you know, I, I want to ask Katie, because Katie, you work with, with farmers, whether corn, beans, fruit and vegetable 
growers, you know, if if we feel overwhelmed in our tiny little yards, how do like how do you handle this in the larger scale? You know, what whether you're talking about a, a bean field or a, a large commercial tomato patch, like yeah. So when we're growing things, corn and soybeans or tomatoes for production, we're often growing it for a profit, and so you have to think about costs that go into um, that and will actually come out of your profit. So we often have economic thresholds that farmers follow before spraying an insecticide. So it's very important to be out in your fields scouting and seeing if you're getting close to those economic thresholds uh, and if it's time to, to spray an insecticide or if it's warranted. I think like our home gardeners, like you said, we become overwhelmed and often our home garden is our own enjoyment uh, and we enjoy seeing those pretty flowers and oftentimes the Japanese beetles just come in and destroy them. So the threshold for your home gardener may be a little lower than our large scale farmers, but oftentimes our yards are often a lot smaller scale than our corn and soybean fields, so it's easier to treat those smaller scale spaces. So it's really based off your personal preference of what you want to do. If it really bothers you that the insects are feeding on your flowers and then that it looks bad, you may decide to, to spray an insecticide or do another control measure. However, if your plants are fairly healthy, they can withstand quite a bit of feeding uh, and they may not require as much of uh, control. I don't know if anybody else on this call feels like this, but I, I have this sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde moment of a kind of my own landscape appearance where on one hand I feel like, hmm, I'm a horticulture educator, I, I write articles for our local paper, people read them, they probably are my neighbors, I should probably have a really decent looking landscape, but then on the other hand, I'm like, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Does anybody else have that feeling? Like, I don't really feel like I need to control the dandelions, or it's all right if Japanese beetles are eating some of my roses. It's not that big a deal. Am I alone in this? Just uh, either validate this or uh, just tell me just, I, I need to start doing more work. Not at I'm, all. I'm in the same boat with you. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> oh, thank God. That's great. Oh. Well, and also kind of sticking to that commercial angle that we're talking about right now. So, Ken and Andrew, now you both work with, like, orchard growers, you know, many different types of tree fruits. And I've noticed, at least in my yard, whether it's crab apple, apple tree, and they just really go after those. So what do these large-scale orchard growers do for helping to at least maybe manage Japanese beetles? I don't know if control is the best word for this situation. So a lot of times they're they're kind of got this they put on cover sprays so at, you know a week two week intervals are applying pesticides to their trees so a lot of times uh, some of those chemicals they're already applying may get um, some of these Japanese beetles to give them some management and just kind of like in in town populations of Japanese beetles can be patchy um, so you know one orchard may be inundated but the one a couple miles down the road may have very few so a lot of that's going to depend on on the amount they have and. And like Katie was mentioning for your, your kind of your row crops and stuff, you know, there is that cost benefit analysis that has to go into it. If you're not, if you've got some, but they're not causing a lot of damage, 
is it really worth applying that pesticide that's that's coming out of your pocket, so, um, so to speak? You know, if you do have a lot of problems, then they're using chemicals that aren't particularly effective to Japanese beetles. They can do a tank mix, add that stuff in there um, as well. Well, and I think another thing that the orchardist uh, keeps in mind is the, the pre-harvest interval. So whenever you're applying uh, insecticides to your fruit, there's a pre-harvest interval that there's a sp- certain amount of time frame that you have to wait before you would eat that fruit for that uh, pesticide to degrade. And so you have to keep in mind what uh, pesticides, what insecticides you're going to select for based on when your harvest is going to be. And so they do keep that in mind, not only for the tree fruit, but there are many fruits because most of our fruit are in the rosaceae family or the rose family that they typically keep that in mind on what particular insecticides they're going to use whenever they're spraying. And there's also considerations for if you're more of the conventional or the organic. So depending on that may also persuade your choice of insecticide. And some of the effectiveness is also, you know, dependent on the the type that you use. And then I know kind of weird do kind of, Andrew and I are primarily peach and apples and a lot of times it's not as big of a concern on apples it's more of a more of a concern with peaches because they'll start eating those fruit and you can go out sometimes and find just basically a peach fruit that's just covered in japanese beetles just this giant cluster of beetles feeding on that fruit so they're probably <clears throat> going to be doing a lot more management of them in, in peaches than they would in apples where they're they're more of a foliar pest than a than a fruit pest and they can actually congregate and that's part of their feeding habit it's not just one Japanese beetle that eats, you know, a, a ginormous amount. It's the many of them, and they're, they're attracted to the Japanese beetles that are present. So the earlier that you can control them, the better off you are. But they'll actually hollow into the fruit itself on peaches, and so that also opens it up for things of fungal infection or diseases. So it's uh, important that you manage the Japanese beetles so you can prevent other problems. And also your orchard floor management would also be a consideration, the amount of weeds and the type of weeds that you have, because Japanese beetles are attracted to a wide variety of host plants, and they feed on you know hundreds and hundreds of plants. So it's something that you'll want to consider whenever you're taking care of your orchard that you do the best management practices and a lot of the orchards that are commercial may have grass alleyways well that uh, grass can have a place where the Japanese beetle can lay eggs and overwinter in their grub stage so might be a consideration for using cover crops in that or you know the amount of irrigation that you have you might choose drip irrigation so you don't have as much irrigation on those alleyways that would you know the drier it is typically the the less inhabitable the for a grub to survive so you mentioned about how they're kind of attracted to to each other through through feeding what about these japanese beetle traps so i know that they have two lures in them one is a scent lure and one's a pheromone lure do these traps work or it sounds like they're using the same tools that the adults beetles are using to attract each other the traps work they work a little too well so a lot of times those traps 
they attract more beetles than they're they're capable of catching. So a lot of times, if you put those traps out, you end up with more problems than you typically would. And if you've ever looked at those traps, that that collection cup is really small. There's some pictures from Iowa State. One of the professors over there kind of did a demonstration. They took off that little cup they put on a, I think it was a, a trash bag, um, and they filled that trash bag overnight. So you can just kind of imagine how many beetles those those traps are drawing in. So they're not going to catch them all. And sometimes as those those beetles are being attracted to those traps, if they land on a, a plant they find desirable, something they want to feed on, they may just stop. They may not make it all the way to the trap. So a lot of times those plants in that flight path are going to have more more beetles on them because you're drawing them in. They find a plant they like, they stay there. And then as they start feeding, when those plants get damaged, those plants will release chemicals because of that damage, which is attractive to those beetles. So that draws more in it and just kind of snowballs on you from there. That's one of those reasons why if you get, for management of Japanese beetles, one of the important things is if you can get a handle on them early within the first couple of weeks of them being out, um, keep them from doing a lot of damage to your plants. A lot of times you have a lot less damage kind of further down the line because you're not getting those those damaged plants releasing those chemicals to draw more beetles in. Yeah, and those chemicals are called pheromones, and they're pretty powerful, and uh, they're used in a lot of the insect traps that we utilize. But another thing about it is that when these Japanese beetles emerge, they they look for their food source, and then shortly thereafter they start mating. And so then, you know, about 10 days later, they start laying their eggs. So the earlier you can catch them, the probably the better off you'll be. Okay, Ken. So kind of what you had said, the earlier, and Andrew just said, the earlier you get control, the better you control you have. But what about the big trees? You know, what do we do about the trees that we can't, maybe can we spray the big trees, the big shade trees that are getting consumed by Japanese beetles. What's uh, What can we do in that regard? So, yeah, so shade trees are, are kind of tricky, especially our large ones. You know, the homeowner is probably not going to have the equipment necessary to do like a foliar spray. You're not going to get good enough coverage on that. And fortunately, a lot of times, you know, these beetles are coming out kind of late, a little bit later in the year. This is not an early spring fest. So trees have, have, have been leafed out for a while. They've started producing a lot of energy. Trees produce more leaves than they really need, so they, it's, they can stand to lose some leaves. So a lot of times it's not really a big concern with shade trees. You could use a systemic pesticide. The issue with that now, though, is that you need to put those on typically in May because um, you would apply those, <clears throat> at least in a homeowner situation, you would apply those to the ground. The, the plant would take that up through the roots and move those insecticides throughout the, the tree into the canopy and stuff. So that takes some time, sometimes a couple of weeks for that to happen. So if you haven't done that yet, that's, it's kind of too late to really do that for this year. I mean, kind of one of the big ones that people would typically apply that to would be linden. And that's one of the, the one of their kind of most favorite plants to feed on. I mean, usually you can tell when Japanese beetles are out, all the linden trees start looking pretty crummy shortly thereafter. But the problem is a lot of times is linden is blooming when those Japanese beetles are coming out. So you're seeing a lot of stuff like the imidacloprid products is one of the systemics. Um, a lot of times they'll say, put on the label, do not apply to linden trees um, because they are blooming um, when Japanese beetles are out when you would be applying these. And sometimes those systemic insecticides can get into that pollen and that nectar and potentially poison pollinators and stuff. So systemics, you got to be careful with those, applying those to plants that are blooming. Okay, so I'm, uh, and then the other question, 
and I'll, I'll ask this to Andrew. So I've, I've noticed at Extension we get phone calls from people who live near like a corn and soybean field, and they just get just totally overwhelmed with Japanese beetles, it seems like. What do we do for some of this like backyard tree fruit? Is there something people can do to protect the trees? You know, what advice do you have for, for folks that are living by areas where they're, they, they're going to get a lot of Japanese beetles? I think just an awareness of that most of the fruit trees are in that rosaceae family, and so you're going to have the potential for Japanese beetles, whether you're near a cornfield or, or not. And protective-wise, you know, definitely don't put out the, the Japanese beetle trap near the trees. It's going to be something that you're going to, you know, be proactive about. There are insecticides that you can can apply. Just keep in mind that uh, pre-harvest interval and uh, select ones that are most likely not going to affect the honeybees and other pollinators and look at you know what if they are you know potential hazards to that so do your uh, research and some things can be organic and not have the need for you know a, a large concern some of that you might find for neem or pyola and so just take into account that uh, you have this tree that is a potential and try to do the best you can to mitigate the damage. Going out and, you know, hand removal with a container of soapy water. The, the soap breaks the surface tension. And so for any ornamental plant or uh, plant of desire, that's something that you can utilize is the soapy water to basically drown the, the insects. And netting for exclusionary purposes uh, for smaller plants can also provide some protection. But you have to be proactive. Once they've emerged, it's a little bit too late to to be netting and protecting. So that kind of the reason why I asked that about the farm field is uh, our new house just so happens to back up to a farm field, so I don't quite know what to expect this summer. I'm just trying to trying to play things here as, as we go along. And I have seen a lot of folks use the, the insect netting on like smaller trees, smaller fruit trees. And, you know, that physical barrier does seem to keep the Japanese beetles away. It is a good technique. And that, that hand-picking is good, too. So if you've got kids or grandkids, send them out with a bucket in the morning and have them start picking beetles for you. Ken, have you heard of arming your children with handheld vacuums to go vacuum the Japanese beetles? I haven't, but I would imagine that would work pretty good, too. I think I think it, I'd just come across that, and I think that would be pretty good. You might want to dedicate your fleet of handheld vacs to, you know, the, that purpose, but that'd probably work for a lot of insects to vacuum them up. In terms of timing, when's the best time of day to do all this vacuuming or soapy water stuff? So early morning is going to be best. Um, that's kind of when they're most sluggish. Um, so that's one of those things if you're if you're hand picking and you don't actually want to touch them. If you go out early in the morning before they warm up, you can shake those branches and they'll fall to the ground. Once they start warming up, they'll fly away. So early in the morning when they're sluggish is going to be easiest. So I like to tell people to go out with your morning cup of coffee, get your bucket of water and soap, and then go out and start picking your Japanese beetles. And some will get away, but, I mean, some will, you know, kind of escape the process. But, you know, some is better than none whenever you're catching them. So one of the 
another main question that I usually get is if I control the grubs in my lawn, is that going to get rid of the adult beetles? And based on what I know, you know, it, adult beetles can fly for miles and miles. And so even if you control the grubs in your immediate lawn, that is not going to prevent them from flying over from your neighbor's yard to come back and eat your roses once again. So uh, again, that's not necessarily true. Some folks have attempted some type of a Japanese beetle grub control on like a wider scale, say like neighborhood or community-wide scale. And those tend to be a bit more effective, but again, they can still fly long distances. So you're not going to, you're still not gonna have just perfect control over that. And also while just mentioning grubs here, I wanna add that recently a common grub control products that contain neonicotinoids, you know, primarily one containing imatocloprid, these have actually been, the label for it has been adjusted so that uh, it's no longer permitted to apply these to a residential lawn. So, it's, so folks do have products that do contain something like imatocloprid, clothianidin, thiamexalim, I can't say it right, but that's something like that. You can use what you have, but you're not gonna be able to purchase any more of that later on. And, and the reason being is because these uh, neonicotinoids as a family of pesticides kind of what you know was was mentioned with the linden tree they are systemic and they can get into the tissue of the plants that is how they actually control the grubs the grubs feed on the roots of the grass and the grass has the insecticide in them kills them but but also it can get in the tissue say the above ground growth and also perhaps the pollen in some of our plants and if you have any type of weeds in your lawn we know there's the potential for that insecticide to be in that pollen and so I think that's why they have now restricted that so that you can no longer apply that to residential lawns. And another product to hear about a lot, a lot for lawn grub control is milky spore. Um, and, and some research, and I think it was out of Ohio State, they're finding that it's not really all that um, effective anymore. So either something, the, something with the formulation or, or the bacteria, that's a bacteria, that milky spore, so that something has gone wrong with that where it's not as effective, or the... Japanese beetles becoming more tolerant of it. They're not really sure, but it's not nearly as effective as it used to be. So if that's something you're using and you're not getting very good management of the grubs, that could be why. Yeah, there, there are a lot of these kind of biological type controls, milky spore being one of them. I've also heard of the these HB nematodes that you can drive. As far as I know, it, it takes time for these products also to build up in your soil to become effective. So you're not going to get the immediate results that you would say with a synthetic insecticide. That being said, sometimes, you know, I've had heard folks say, okay, I'll put the milky spore down, but since it's going to take a year or two for it to build up in the soil, I'm going to go ahead and put my grub killer down. Well, you probably just negated any effect that milky spore might have in your soil because you're, you're treating per, maybe with like a broad spectrum type insecticide. So something to keep in mind, kind of the as we dive, just sort of dip our toes, I guess I would say, into the, the soil kind of living system or that food web. Well, I think it's also important to realize that you have more than one part of the life cycle that you're treating for. If you're treating for grubs or adults, you could do an excellent job of treating for the, the lawn and totally miss the treatment of the trees or the shrubs, and the adults are going to feed on those trees and shrubs, and you may have 
you know, very poor looking trees and shrubs, but an excellent looking lawn or vice versa, depending on, you know, your level of control that you uh, need to achieve or desire. That's that's a good point. And it kind of also reminds me some of the things that you can do to make your your yard a bit less inviting to them. You know, things like selecting landscape plants that the adults don't like to feed on, which I think we do have a handout or a publication. U of I Extension has something that we can uh, put that link in our show notes. But then also, kind of back to that grub topic, you know, making your lawn less desirable to the females to lay her eggs. They they don't necessarily prefer, you know, taller cut grass. You know, drier soils is not something they're looking for. So if you have a dedicated irrigation system, you might be facing more grub damage because that's just more of a desirable lawn area. You know, we tend not to see as much damage underneath shade trees. But that doesn't always hold true. I, I have seen definitely grub damage there. The other thing is you also tend to see them around warmer soil areas, so areas around sidewalks, driveways, patios, things like that. And if you ever want to know, you know, Katie had mentioned earlier, you know, this idea of this kind of threshold for treatment, this economic injury level. We do have that for lawns too, if you want to uh, investigate that for your lawn. So you could take just a square foot slice of your sod, so you use a sharp knife and you cut your sod as a square foot and you peel that sod back. And underneath that, if you can count more than, I think it's 10 to 11 grubs, then that is the threshold that is worth treating. If you have anything less than that, then your lawn can outgrow any damage that population of grubs can cause. So you're you, no need to do any type of treatment in that case. Oh, and also to add, make sure to cut your square foot not where the grub damage necessarily is, but on the margin or that kind of that edge of where that damage is that you're seeing because they, they aren't going to be feeding on the dead grass. They have moved on into that uh, farther along into your lawn in that living grass. And then if you're doing that and you want to actually know what type of grubs you have, you can look at the raster pattern, and that's a pattern of hairs kind of on the hind end, the butt end, so to speak, of the, of the beetle. So if you look at those the patterns of those hairs, you can actually determine the species of grub you have. So it would be a good way to impress all your neighbors and stuff. As the words were coming out of my mouth, I knew Ken was going to talk about looking at grub butts. <laughs> Just set, setting them up for that. So, yes, folks. And Ken, actually, in your you have a presentation on Japanese beetles, and you have a slide, don't you, in that presentation that shows those raster patterns? Yeah, it's got a folks, few examples of them. If people were really, really curious and they really did want to learn more about that, you can um, check out Ken's Japanese beetle webinar that he gives, and he, he shows diagrams of the different raster patterns or the hairs on the beetle butts. It's a good it's a good trick to know. Well, I don't know about uh, you other horticulture educators, but I often have people that don't know what the Japanese beetle looks like and get it confused with some other, you know, metallic green beetles that just because they're uh, shiny and green doesn't mean that they are particularly the Japanese beetles. So there are some characteristics that we might want to share with the, the public on how to identify the adult Japanese beetle. So they're about a half inch long. They generally do have that uh, metallic green on the front end, but they also have a, kind of a copper colored wing covering, and they have about 
five white tufts of hair on each side of their abdomen. And so those five tufts of white hair are pretty telling and indicative of it being a Japanese beetle. So does smashing a Japanese beetle attract more of them? So I've, heard, I've seen these Japanese beetle shakes created online. You put a bunch in a, a blender and you you spray them on a plant as like a warning to the others. But then also folks say if you smash a beetle, it releases the attracting pheromone and it will bring more in. What's the consensus on that? Do we know? So a lot of times, yeah, people are concerned about that. But that's that's typically not the case when you smash those. They're not going to attract more. So the virgin females, when they, when they first emerge, they'll produce pheromones that are going to attract males. But once they mate, they no longer produce those pheromones. So you can you can squish away. You don't have to worry about it. Perfect. Yes, I know a grower. She actually feeds them to her chickens, and they—I think they eat every. I think I might have this reverse. They eat the head of the beetle, and they leave the rest behind. And then I have also seen, after I put the Japanese beetles in soapy water, I dump them onto the driveway after they've drowned. I watched a cardinal. I thought this was interesting. A cardinal pick up the Japanese beetle and also remove its head and just take the head. I don't know if it ate it or what it did with it, but I just thought that was interesting. I didn't know that they ate those. My boss heard the chickens. I've heard like koi ponds and stuff. People will feed them the, the koi and stuff as well. Yeah. So alternative uses for Japanese beetles, and as Andrew described them, they're shiny, they're pretty. Let's put them in some jewelry or something. Exactly. So another favorite summer crop for me is sweet corn. And... Uh, just so happened to have heard that they also tend to attack sweet corn. They go after the silks of sweet corn. Uh, Katie, do you know, like, is this something that we need to treat? Because they're not, the, the, the them devouring the silks affect what we get later on? Or is there a threshold for that, for controlling Japanese beetles? Yeah, so it's called silk clipping, uh, and we see this happen in cornfields as well as with our sweet corn. So something to know about corn is each silk turns into a kernel, and so it's important to know where you are during your pollination process. So if you're early in the pollination process and the Japanese beetles have fed on all of your silks, you're probably not going to have very good kernel fill or uh, kernel development because you don't have the silks there to develop into a or to be pollinated to develop into a kernel so that can be an issue a lot of times though we do see that they feed on the silks post pollination and so that's not going to have much of an effect on our kernel development so it's not as much of a worry you can scout for Japanese beetles in your sweet corn patches. It's suggested that treatment should be implemented when there are three or more Japanese beetles per ear on, on your corn plants. It's also suggested if silks have been clipped to less than half an inch. Uh, so that's some pretty severe clipping. And then it's also suggested to implement treatment if pollination is less than 50% complete. And then also if Japanese beetles are still present and actively feeding on your silks. Uh, so this could definitely be an issue with later planted corn. Uh, but if we have 
pollination occurring earlier in the season, that's not something that we would expect to see as much of an issue with. That's good to know. I, I told my kids that the farmer's market in Macomb has opened up. And even though it's like mid-June right now, they're like, do they have sweet corn? I mean, that's their first question. You know, it's like, we want sweet corn. I'm like, no, not yet. But it's coming. So that's good to know. Yeah, it's always something to look forward to. And it would be very disappointing if you didn't get any sweet corn due to Japanese beetles. I mean, we already have enough to hate them over just getting, not having sweet corn in the summer. That's just, that might be too much for us, especially in 2020. So uh, the next thing I want to ask, and you know, I'll ask Ken, but I'm also going to kind of open this up to everybody here. I routinely get the question of organic controls. I think we mentioned a few of those already today, like milky uh, disease, but Ken, and then everybody, what options do people have if they do want to stick to organic controls of Japanese beetles? And is that effective or not? So there's a lot of stuff we've, we've talked about you know, would, would fit into that organics, you know, your hand-picking, netting, stuff like that. Um, that some of that K, that kaolin clay, um, putting that on, like your fruit trees, that stuff can be kind of hard. Like with peaches, you put that on there, and that can be kind of hard to get that off, that fuzz and stuff. So you have some kind of unsightly-looking peaches. Um, but, again, if you're growing this at home, that's that's not that big of a concern. You know, chemical-wise, so you know, Andrew mentioned, like, the neem, some of the pyrethrins, it's like pyganic would work. Some of the issues with our kind of our, our organic controls is that they do not persist all that long. So a lot of times you have to put those on much more frequently, sometimes you know, every couple of days potentially. So you end up putting a lot more of that product on your plants in order to protect them, whereas some of our more synthetic, you know, carbaryl, stuff like that, sometimes you can go a week, maybe two weeks in between applications. So that's one of the big drawbacks of those more organic types is that they just don't persist as long and you actually end up, have to end up putting on more of it. And a lot of times those can be a lot a little more expensive than kind of our traditional synthetic types. Again, our biological controls, like you mentioned, so the milky spore, it's kind of debatable as to whether that's not that's still all that effective. Um, there is a, a BT, so you, you talk about a Bacillus thuringiensis, like Kerstachii would work for caterpillars. The, the BTK, the BTI, Israeliensis would work for, um, that's in like mosquito dunks, so working for mosquitoes. There is a BTG or gallery that is found to work on Japanese beetles, both for the grubs and the adults. So that, that would be another potential product that you can use. Everything I've seen, though, is that it, this is something that's really only available online. I haven't really seen or seen it in any kind of store or heard about it being available in stores, so it's more of a, an online purchase. But that could be it would be another potential organic option. And then, Chris, you mentioned the nematodes. There's, you know, there's nematodes, potentially. There are some flies and wasps, so beneficial insects that will control them. It's not anything you can buy, but they will kind of show up naturally sometimes as well. Probably not going to, they're not going to do a good job if you've got a, a real large population, um, but if you kind of have some here and there and those are present, you kind of help keep those populations a little bit lower. Um, again, those, a lot of times those biological stuff are, are more expensive and when you're applying them, um, you kind of have to be careful. For example, with those nematodes, if you put those on the soil, uh, you're putting those in turf. If you don't water those in down into the soil, if they get kind of stuck on the grass blades, they're going to dry out and die. You have to water those in. Typically, you're putting those in a small area 
watering it in going into the next area so it can take a lot longer to apply those as well. One thing to consider is that even with commercial insecticides is that the Japanese beetle it doesn't emerge all in one day it's a, a very widespread emergence and so you'll have kind of a, a trickle effect of emergence and so when you're spraying you may kill all the beetles in one day you know at, at one particular time frame but there's going to be more that are going to emerge or come to your area so it's going to be uh, not a one and done situation where you're going to have to be you know maybe repeatedly sprayed according to the label and keep in mind of you know again those pre-harvest intervals if it's a food crop so one other thing i did want to mention also that we experimented here with macomb so we have a food donation garden where we're at and between us and the food donation garden there's a, a little patch of just it's basically it's not really prairie grass it's just a kind of a grown-up field, and then beyond that is an alfalfa field. And we have found that we get a ton of Japanese beetles that come in off of that alfalfa field into our food donation garden. So there is this little study that was done by University of Missouri where they actually took, a, I think it was a blueberry uh, planting, acres and acres worth of blueberries. And I know we say that trapping doesn't work, but they tried this, what they call it a mass trapping strategy, and they experimented with these basically 33-gallon trash cans that they modified to be essentially giant Japanese beetle traps. And they put them on the perimeter between where they, you know, where the adult beetles would be coming in, they thought, and then between them and the blueberry bushes. And in terms of the initial results of the study, they were seeing a reduction in damage on the blueberries. And so they, they did publish that information. And so actually we replicated that in here in Macomb, but also at our food donation garden in Galesburg. Now I will add the, the one in Macomb, it worked really well because you know the food donation garden basically has woods uh, around it, but then there's that alfalfa field on one side. So we kind of had a known trajectory for these beetles. So we actually had far less damage the two years that we did the mass Japanese beetle traps than in years prior. However, the Galesburg one didn't fare so well. That is more of an urban garden, lots of kind of open lawn area, residential around it. So we didn't really have a single traje trajectory to, to do that. So we actually wound up not seeing much of an effect in the Galesburg garden because they're kind of coming from all different directions into the garden. So yeah, that, just something to maybe investigate a little bit more. Again, if folks are upset about the ornamental appeal that Japanese beetles give to their trees, they probably don't want to have five to ten of trash cans sitting out in their yard for the whole summer. So usually that's not a good option for folks. So, but just if you're a, a grower, that might be something to investigate. But I think it really does depend a lot on your environment and on your setting that you're using this. Well, I don't want folks to completely be in despair, you know, with the uh, Japanese beetles emergence coming here in 2020. I had, you know, what worse could happen? But that's not a question you asked this year. But really, it, the biggest wave of Japanese beetles that we tend to see is when they first enter that area. It takes a few years for them to, to build up, but then the, the next, like, two or three years, you see just staggering population numbers. People are just overwhelmed and inundated with them. 
But then if you talk to folks where Japanese beetles have been for a long time, you know, a lot of times what they will report back is that, yes, we still have them. We have good years, we have bad years, but it was not necessarily like that, that first wave that came through. So I don't want folks to be thinking who might just now be facing having Japanese beetles entering their area that this is all doom and gloom. There is kind of a, a light at that end of the tunnel. And, you know, if you're worried about, say, your shade trees, if they're totally defoliated and you're thinking, ah, oh, the whole thing's dead and let's just cut it down, if it's a healthy tree that takes this damage in stride, it will leaf back out later on in the season and it should be just fine. Just promote the overall health of the tree in that case. And speaking of trees, next week we are going to be talking with Ryan Pankow. He's a horticulture educator, and his one of his specialties is in trees and tree care, tree management. So we will chat with Ryan. So folks have questions on whether it's an urban tree or a tree out in the country or forestry, Ryan can answer those questions for us. And I want to thank Katie and Ken, thank you both for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And Andrew, thanks for coming back to chat with Japanese beetles. And we are going to be having a webinar series coming out soon, but those details will be released later. Always good to be here, Chris. Always good to have you. And folks, as always, thank you for listening. Keep on growing.